0: And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. On this Martin Luther King Day, I want to replay for you what I regard as perhaps the single most thought-provoking morning show conversation I've ever recorded about race and racism. It dates from 2014. We're going to be talking over the next few minutes about racism. And I'm so glad that we can do so Uh, through the lens of a very perceptive and intriguing book called Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. This is a disarmingly frank, honest memoir by Debbie Irving, who is a racial justice educator and writer. And uh, she has had concerns about issues of race uh, for many, many years. Uh, But maybe only quite recently has come to realize, in a sense, her own deep-seated racism and the racism which just about all of us have to, to, to one extent or another. Uh, she came to realize that she had not ever really thought about racism and been honest about herself in terms of her own attitudes and, and prejudices, uh, and that this, in effect, uh, also had... Uh, a a, a, a way of disarming or undermining some of what she was trying to do in terms of accomplishing good in the world uh and so uh hence the the the, the catalyst behind this really intriguing book uh which is a very personal chronicle of her own uh, realization about uh matters of, of of race and how her own upbringing had had led her uh quite inadvertently uh to hold certain racist views. And, and although the story is, in many respects, uniquely that of the author, Debbie Irving, this is a story that belongs to all of us as Americans. And uh, her own uh, experience of, of self-discovery uh, is one that, that needs to happen in, in really all of our lives. Uh, that's primarily what I take away from this very, very fine book. It's published by Elephant Room Press. Again, it's titled, Waking Up White and finding myself in the story of race. Debbie Irving, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you so much. That was a really wonderful reflection of what um, I set out to do as articulated by you. You really (laughs) nailed it.
0: (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad glad you think so. And I neglected to say, and I do want to say this uh, in case I forget at the end, that you're you're choosing to uh, donate half of the profits of this book Uh, To various charities addressing issues of of racial uh, inequality. I guess one of the things that is so striking about your book, and I, I think this is where we should begin, is that this is a story of, in a sense, a racist, meaning you, but not in the way that we ever think about someone being a racist or guilty of harboring racist attitudes about others. I mean, um uh, even as a young person growing up, uh yours was not the sort of uh typical racist household that we often think of or see see depicted. Uh and, and and because of that, it's probably an even more important story to tell than uh the more familiar stories of racism that involve things like the Ku Klux Klan and uh and and, and so on. Um uh, t- tell us more about the experience of of telling such a uh, sort of unlikely story of racism
1: yeah i really I, you know i think i I think the first line in the book is once upon not so long ago if someone had called me a racist, I would have kicked and screamed. I would have run away to lick my wounds
0: <laughs> right
1: um. I really had no idea. For me, for I'm 53 years old, and until the age of 48, when I had my big aha moment, um, I thought that racism—I confused racism with prejudice. I thought it was when you didn't like a person of color, or you said or did something, you know, nasty. I had no idea that racism was this large and historical and intertwined set of systems in America that simultaneously advantage. American white Americans at the expense of and while disadvantaging everybody else, um, and so for me the process of coming to terms with what that meant in my life, you know the the process of that self discovery began with the tangibles like wait a second the town I grew up in was I thought it was exclusively white because whites could be you know had somehow achieved more and were able to afford homes in that town, I didn't recognize that there were actual policies that precluded black and brown families from moving in. So the beginning of the journey was very tangible. As time went on, it got deeper and deeper, and I started to get more and more in touch with uh, a lot of the prejudice and and bias that I had in me. That I, It was buried so deeply, I didn't even know it was there. And the process of writing. Writing is a very powerful process. I know you um, are in the performing arts. Performing arts is also. They're all ways to get at our subconscious. Um,
0: so in other construct. words, so, so in other three, words,
1: I, I was going to say the writing process is what unearthed a lot of that bias.
0: So it's not that you had this aha, oh, I have all these feelings. I'm going to write about them. That I mean, maybe to to a point that was true, but in some respects. Just the act of writing was, <laughs> in a sense, sort of a, 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 a an excavator of sorts, that as you wrote, you found yourself digging deeper into yourself and realizing more and more about the attitudes that were there, about which you weren't even aware.
1: Yes, which is why the one year I set aside to write the book turned into four, and um, the the other thing that was just critical to my journey was that I wasn't just sitting in my office writing away um, all day long. I was traveling all over the country going to conferences and workshops and picking up the phone and calling people who are experts in this field or have been in, involved in this work for a long, long time, and people who are white, people who are everything. I really wanted as many perspectives, and I asked people to push me. You know, what am I because the big aha was, oh my God, there's so much I didn't know I didn't know. So I kept asking people, what else don't I know? And that that this is why I want to give 50% of the profits to this existing infrastructure in America that I didn't know existed. There are people all over this country who are just fantastic at supporting uh, people who are interested in understanding racism and dismantling racism. So that was a huge part of the journey. And there were just layers and layers and layers. And there still are. My learning, I believe, will never end.
0: I think as as I read, read your book and thought about the kind of racism which it is discussing, and it is, I mean, I suppose in some ways racism is racism, but it's one thing when it plays out in the Deep South and involves terrible acts of violence, burning crosses on someone's lawn and, uh, I mean, uh, sometimes involving even brutal murder and so on. I mean, that that is one way in which racism plays out. And the the good guys and the bad guys are are, are pretty easy to identify. And we certainly don't think of ourselves as being on the side of the fence with these monsters who, who do these monstrous things. It's another thing when we're talking about racism that, in a sense, is uh, much more civilized, much more well-behaved, maybe even polite on the surface, uh, and yet at the heart of it is this same notion which drives it all, uh, of white superiority. And uh and because it's something we are less aware of, it's probably even in a sense more important to, to talk about that and, and write about
1: that. Yeah. And I and I think um that I did myself a real disservice by And, you know, I'm not sure what else I could have done because I was really behaving in the way I was socialized uh, or thinking, thinking and acting in the way I was socialized to think and act. But I did myself a real disservice by thinking the South were the bad guys and that the North was somehow not complicit. You know, even if we go back to slavery, the North was completely complicit in slavery because all of the financial institutions that were developing, everything that was going on in the North was happening because of the economy that was being built. Um, on the South and on the backs of enslaved Africans. So um, at every stage, really, through history, when you really start digging, you go, oh, man, no, I can't believe that. So uh, there's so much to learn. There's so much awareness to raise. When you talk about, you mentioned something about nice, I can't remember, I have a a chapter in my book called The Culture of Niceness. One of the most unexpected ways I I began to recognize that I was contributing to the problem is that I was raised to really not rock the boat, that conflict was something to be avoided. And I developed this just extraordinary antenna, antenna, as many Americans do, that when you start to get into that tense area in conversations, you steer the conversation elsewhere. And you think about what that means for people um, who are experiencing some kind of a marginalization or disadvantage, whether it's race, whether it's someone who's living with disabilities and would love to see some changes around that, or whether it's around sexual orientation, whether it's around class oppression. There are all these ways that people get marginalized. And then people who are in the dominant group who have been trained not to see that, complain, that as complaining And as some kind of a moral failing or a social faux pas, it gives no voice to the people whose voices we most need to hear to create an equitable America. Mm.
0: For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Debbie Irving. We're talking about her memoir, Waking Up White, and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Uh, The first section of your book, after the very uh, well-written introduction, is called Childhood in White. In which you describe uh, uh, some of the ways in which your parents, uh, almost certainly inadvertently and unconsciously, passed on all kinds of, of racist af- attitudes to you, which you fully embraced. Again, not not even understanding that 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 was occurring. Uh, I have to ask uh, if if your parents, uh, either of them, are still alive, and uh, yeah. and I, and I wonder uh, what it was like to write about your own childhood and write about some of these issues um, and wondering how they would receive that. Or did you write this, in a sense, in cooperation with them? Uh, How how did you handle what I suspect was a pretty sensitive issue?
1: Yeah. Um, My parents, uh, neither of them are alive, and, and I don't think I could have written this book if they were alive. Um, I didn't plan it that way. It was just the timing of the big wake-up moment for me, which was a graduate school course where I was asked to spend six months digging into my own um, history. Um, That just happened to occur, uh, you know, a couple years after they had died. They died fairly close together. Um, That said, I'm from a really close-knit family. I'm one of five children and one of 20 first cousins who spend a lot of time together. And the... All of my siblings read the book. The, the book that's out is version ten. There were nine versions, um, each heavily vetted. <laughs> Both <book. laughs> and many, you know, many writers do this, but not every writer gets as many test readers. So I had actual focus groups, and I also had family members reading each version. And um, you know, so by the time we were ready to go, everyone had had. And maybe this is another reason I needed four years, not one, because everybody needed to wrap their heads around what I was doing and what I was laying out there on the line. But, you know, I think ultimately we all embrace the idea that are we really going to make a choice to um, maintain some myth about our family or make ourselves look good when there are millions of people suffering over an issue? No, we're not. The, the right choice here is to really let, let Debbie lay it on the line, or <laughs> not let, because I could do it, but support Debbie as she lays it on the line. And um, my family has been incredible. Yeah.
0: The first chapter starts with such an interesting story, which involves uh, the way you put it in the as you described the story, the Indians, of course, now we would say Native Americans, but a question you asked your mom when you were just five years old, whatever happened to all the Indians? So you must have seen a story or seen a picture uh, about the Indians. Well, where are they now? And uh, describe to our listeners... The, the answer that your mom gave you that day?
1: Well, to put it in context, I hadn't just seen a picture. I was full-on obsessed with Indians in the way some kids are obsessed with trains or, you know, you name it. Thomas the Tank Engine, I was obsessed with Indians. I had little figurines. I wanted to live in a world where people lived in teepees and we cooked over, over the open fire. I was a horse fanatic. I still am. I wanted to ride my horse bareback. I wanted to fish all day. I wanted to be an Indian. And so when I asked my mother that question, I was already completely enamored and I, and I had romanticized this culture. Um, and I really was hoping that the answer was going to be, oh, would you like to go visit? They're, you know, they live just a couple miles away. So I asked her whatever happened to all the Indians, and she said they, they drank themselves to death. They just really couldn't handle liquor. And when I say that and when I'm giving um, a talk, there is an audible gasp in the room. And yet people will come up to me afterwards and say, I was told the same thing. And, um, and that audible gasp is pretty similar to what I felt in my body as a five-year-old. I think that's why I remember this situation so clearly, even though I was five. I The, I just, the, the, the bottom fell out from under me. I was crushed. I was devastated. And I must have pushed her. Uh, my parents were very much believers that you protected children. So the fact that she went on to tell me this story about a, a drunken Indian on a rampage who axed an entire family, became a part of that discussion, which the bottom then dropped out further. What's so sad about that story is that both the idea that um, Indians were drunk and Indians were savage was repeated again and again and again and again throughout my life in books and um, TV shows and movies. And so that's that stereotype that she had gotten from somewhere um, got reproduced in me.
0: Hmm. And you write... I got, uh, I mean, instead of getting a a really thoughtful and complete uh, uh, answer, you write, Instead, I got hand-me-down snippets that never added up and left me feeling confused and upset. Neither my mother nor I understood that moment as one of many in which she was racializing me. Without ever once mentioning the words race or skin color, my mother passed along to me the belief that the two were connected— to inherent human difference, but I want to ask you about something else that even goes beyond the specifics of this sort of uh, of account of what happened to uh, Native Americans. Uh, you finished the chapter by saying that, in in some ways, an even worse or more pervasive disservice that was done to you uh, was the way that it it sort of made it seem like skimming the surface was okay when it comes to answering really important questions. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, you know, this is, again, a lot of what I say um, in the book. It's hard to say. It's it's humiliating. And this is a humiliating thing to say. I was a history major in college. And um, even then, I don't think it was until after college that it finally dawned on me or someone pointed out to me that just because it's written in a textbook, it doesn't mean it's true. Or it doesn't mean it isn't biased or slanted or something. And so I took at face value everything that was given to me. I didn't, I didn't develop um, an ability to stand back and say, wait, let's think about this. Is this, does, is, is this lining up with what your observations or your gut tell you? So I was always taking information at face value, and it wasn't lining up with what my gut was telling me. And that was what that... I now understand that that is what that uncomfortable, tense feeling was in me. Whenever the idea of race, racism came up, whenever I was with a person of color, I would just be overcome by this sense of anxiety. And it was just all these built-up moments of, uh, sort of fear and misinformation that had been presented to me and never processed.
0: Mm. Plus, of course, just the whole matter of of looking at the world in in such careless fashion. You write at one point, uh, embedded in her incomplete story, that is your mother's incomplete story, was a message that just one piece of information drawn from a single perspective was good enough to form a conclusion. Neither my mother, nor the media, nor my schooling encouraged me to dig deeper to find indigenous people and ask how they told their own story. My mother passed along to me not only incomplete information, but also an intellectual habit of not questioning authority, not pursuing other dimensions of a story, and not having the interest or stamina to grapple with complex issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are really important words because I think so many of us are are guilty of that. And and it plays out in in all kinds of destructive ways.
1: Yeah, I, you know, and I would say um, one of the ways I often, as I work as a, a racial justice educator, is I ask people to start thinking about their own relationships. You know, how like in my own marriage, I've been married for twenty years. I spent the first ten years of my marriage trying to get my husband to you know be more like me, because it was creating you know tension in the house for him to be different than me. And what I realized is I spent those 10 years just, I never sat down and said, what is it about, like, I'm, I'm incredibly scheduled and um, very organized and controlling. And I never sat down and asked him, what is it like for you to be with someone who's so uh, organized? Is there something about my style that's bothering you? So it's this whole idea that we know what we know and we, and we want other people to align with what we know as opposed to seeking other points of view and they might be complicated and, there, and there's going to be navigation as you um, get through that conflict to the other side which hopefully is some kind of collaboration. Um, but that, you know, it plays out when you say in destructive ways. I think people would be surprised how it plays out in ways that have nothing to do, you think, with racism.
0: Absolutely, our own
1: relationships.
0: Of course, you you go on to, to talk about other ways in which your own particular childhood, your own background, uh, was fertile ground for some of these racist attitudes to, to, to play out, and, and and they would be things that on the surface would would not cause us any concern at all. I mean, the 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 uh, emphasis that your family placed on on optimism, or the way in which your family was averse to Complaint. I mean, and you—you you just grew up just not particularly enjoying hearing other people complain. Well, of course, <laughs> it's that—that's it's it's pretty easy when you have a life in which there's not a whole lot to complain about. But then that means uh, when somebody comes along with very real reason for complaint, uh, you, will, in a sense, um, are not going to be particularly open, particularly sensitive. Um, to their To their plight, uh, because of something uh, that again, on the surface, seems like a perfectly fine trait to have
1: yeah, and it's actually much worse than that. It's not that I wasn't open to it it's that I saw it as as a character flaw. and so I would immediately disregard whatever their message was would be a tainted message because it was coming from someone who had a character flaw. And again, I wouldn't have admitted any of this. I didn't know it was in there. This is so um, so deeply a part of my socialization. Yeah, but I, I do think it is important that it wasn't, it wasn't a passive, I'm not going to seek out your, your different opinion. It, right. it was more than that. Y- it's like yeah. If you offer something that doesn't align with, with what I think, or if you come across with a complaining tone, I'm just not going to hear you.
0: Right, absolutely. And there's, and there's something wrong with you if you can't look to the bright side and pull yourself up from your bootstraps and, uh, and, and, and fight your way through what might be kind of going wrong. Thank um, you.
1: You just reminded me. Okay, oh. bootstraps comment. That jarred my memory. So the thing is that I was so deeply invested, in, and so, I think there are millions of Americans who are deeply invested in the idea that America is a level playing field that it's a meritocracy, and that if someone isn't achieving, it has everything to do with their own um, effort or lack thereof. And that is what just makes the system so terrible, because it allows us to blame the victim.
0: When in fact, often they are uh, not to be faulted at all. Uh, And I think for you, one of the great Points of discovery of that, realizations of that, came uh, when you decided to to take a course in uh, two thousand nine. You're forty eight years old. You have been working, uh, I believe, uh, w- with with urban youth at risk youth. I mean, you've you've been doing good work as a good person, but realizing that there was something missing in terms of your own understanding of the races. And and so you take this, uh, this course and uh, end up watching a film that shatters many of your illusions about how the world operated. Um, tell our listeners about that.
1: Yeah, and I will say that it, they didn't even introduce this film until, uh, if it was a 16-week course, they didn't even introduce the film, I don't think, until the fourth or fifth class because they spent a lot of time... Um, Talking about how the brain sorts information and about the psychology of perception and kind of laying the groundwork so that once you did get a different uh, view of the world, you had some tools to deal with it. So the film was called "The Power Race: The Power of an Illusion." It's um, produced by California Newsreel and it aired on PBS. I'm not exactly sure when in my life it. I didn't see it until 2009, um, and. There are three parts to it, the third, and each is an hour. So the third part was the one that absolutely undid me, and that was about the GI Bill. And that was the one where all of a sudden the whole idea of systemic racism came together for me and uh, the idea that I had grown up in a house and in a town that uh, was absolutely built on white advantage, white privilege, uh, accumulated white advantage, accumulated white privilege, It suddenly there was this tangible manifestation of it. And in fact, that night, instead of going home, I, I had to call my husband and I said, I cannot come home. I'm way too upset. I don't want the kids on. Here I am being protective. I don't want the kids to see me like this. And um, so I drove out to Winchester, which is the town I grew up in and is a 20-minute drive from where uh, we live and where the school is that I was at, the college I was at. Um, and I just parked in front of my house, and I just, I could not stare at it long enough and get it back to the warm, fuzzy homestead it had been for me. It just was staring at me, mm. like, uh, you know, in some Walt Disney movie or some some animated Film like it just had taken on this this really um, sinister feeling
0: you write at one point in in watching this this film, which which makes the point that african Americans were largely excluded from the the marvelous benefits of of the g i bill, if not in the letter of the law, certainly in practice. You you write the chilling reality is that while the American dream fell into the laps of millions of Americans, making the GI Bill the great equalizer for the race range of white ethnicities in the melting pot, Americans of color, including the one million black GIs who'd risked their lives in the war, were largely excluded. The same GI Bill that had given white families like mine a socioeconomic rocket boost, had left people of color. Out to dry. I'd been reaping the benefits of being a white person without even knowing it. And you say watching this film was like driving by a grotesque car crash. Transfixed, I couldn't turn away, yet what I was taking in was literally making me nauseated and short of breath. My thoughts raced with the notion that racism was frightfully bigger and more sinister than I'd ever understood. And hardest for me, that people like my own family and friends, people in charge, must have understood this to a certain degree, if not had a hand in its orchestration. This was intentional. This was manipulative. This was not freedom for all. I can, as you write that, I mean, I think most of us can put ourselves in your shoes, and realize how this had to shake your whole world your your very being to its core.
1: Mm. Yeah, uh, it it really did. It it actually is shaking me just to hear you read that. Hmm. I've never heard anyone but me read that out loud.
0: Hmm. And I I wonder then if you could explain to our listeners what sort of impact that had in terms of what you did about that besides the kind of driving around and not going home. I mean, kind of the emotional Reaction. I mean, what does one do uh, tangibly when, when you come to that sort of radical new understanding about how the world works?
1: Well, the benefit I had was that I was in uh, the midst of this course. It was a you know graduate level course. There were probably twelve of us, and just this phenomenal professor. And so I was in in a com- in community going through this. And, um, and there was just so much work. There was so much reading and so much writing that I just had to process it. I had no choice but to process it. Um, for people who get this awakening, and uh, uh, one of my uh, colleagues is a white woman who went to a four-day workshop, um, her job center there, without anyone else. Just so she went um, with a bunch of people from all over the country. And she said when she came home to her hometown, which coincidentally is Winchester, Massachusetts, where I grew up, um, she went home and she said she felt like she'd been blown out of a cannon and had landed in a field all by herself, and she had no idea what to do. So um, what she did was she started getting to, she tried to figure out who else in town had kind of gotten this 180-degree paradigm shift about how racism works, and she, they started getting together and talking and thinking about what they could do to make this uh, knowledge and awareness um, more... Um, what's the word, just broadcast it around town and get and get people in town involved. And, she st- and this is 20 years ago. She started something called the Winchester Multicultural Network. I, you can imagine I nearly fell off my chair when <laughs> I realized that had been um, established. But, you know, it started as just a small group of people getting together to try to process. And they, you know, meeting by meeting, they figured out what to do, and they now have this thriving organization that, you know, in a, in a still predominantly white suburb that uh, talks openly about this, issue and they show films and they have townwide book groups and book reads. So um, I think that the most important thing people can do is to start to find out who you already know or who might be in your town or your workplace or your school or somewhere in a community or your faith community who, who already has this kind of working analysis of racism. Um, that you can start to talk to, share information with. It's it's not the kind of thing you want to try to deal with on your own.
0: Mm. And, of course, you, you talk in the book about how this was painful for you in that so much of what you and, let's say, your family had achieved, I think at one point you say felt tinged with fraudulence, that you, you suddenly felt like who your family was and what they had accomplished collectively and you, each of you individually, w- w- was, was at least partly a fraud and built on an unjust system. And yet you faced a real interesting challenge as you came to grapple with systemic racism, with how do I talk about this? And how do I talk about this with my own neighbors, with my own peers? I should think even to this day, that probably remains a, a, a difficult challenge.
1: Well, you know... That is, a, that is one of the most interesting aspects of the journey. When I first got out of that course, I had a lot of ideas and new understandings, but I could not get them out. I didn't have the language, and I was so constricted socially in terms of uh, you know, social code about what was and wasn't okay that I could hear people around me speaking um, about like the, the Henry Louis Gates incident. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but a black Harvard yes. professor who was trying to get into his home the key's not working, and suddenly it's this nationwide thing because the police show up. And um, Anyway, so people are all around me, and I were talking about that, and I couldn't I couldn't for the life of me string a sentence together that would help them shift their thinking. And so I realized, oh, my God, I, I need to learn how to talk about this. So I have put a huge amount of energy into learning how to talk about it, um, both so that I can express what's in my heart and in my head, Um, And that I can do it and I can kind of meet as a teacher. One of the things we think a lot about, I was an elementary school teacher and now I'm an adult ed teacher. Um, We think a lot about meeting people where they are. So, you know, there's no good if you're teaching math, trying to teach a second grader, you know, seventh grade geometry. They won't get it. That's why we, we meet people where they are. We give them the information they need to get to the next level. I've worked really hard to figure out how to talk to people in a way that meets them where they are. And I can pretty quickly sense, as can anyone who's in this work, we can pretty quickly sense where someone is. And, um, you know, the worst thing you want to do is make someone feel, uh, you know, shamed and blamed. Um, we really want, and when I say we, I mean, I, I now absolutely consider myself a part of America's racial justice movement. And it is a, an amazing group of people coast to coast <laughs> and north to south. Uh, we are really more and more working from a place of compassion and one human family and, you know, human justice, not just racial justice. It's about human justice. And so my language has changed a lot over the four years. It hasn't just gotten, um, I'm not just better at doing it. I'm, it's fitting who I am, Hmm. if that makes sense. I've really tailored it to who I am and the way I like to work. And now I'll talk to anybody, anywhere, anytime. (laughs) <laughs> just get
0: me going <laughs> continuing my conversation with Debbie Irving talking about her memoir Waking Up White and finding myself in the story of race i think in in many respects you you make some of your most important discoveries uh n- not just about your own personal, individual racism as it has played out through your childhood and into your adulthood, but also sort of stepping further outside of your own personal experience to to understand what systemic racism is uh, all about. And uh, this came in sort of fits and starts, I suppose, for you. But uh, at some point, particularly after watching uh, a very important uh, Nightline video on ABC News, you came to a kind of a new realization of what you say is uh, an isolated outcome connected to an entangled and entrenched system invisible to the eye. Tell us what you saw on Nightline that helped you understand systemic racism in a way you never had before.
1: Right. It was um, Ted Koppel did a piece there following uh, the death of a 17-year-old black girl Uh, who had been hit by a truck as she was crossing the street trying to get from, um, she was en route to work, and she had gotten, uh, it was a a commute that required a couple different buses, and she was getting from, I don't know if it was bus A to B or B to C, but anyway, she was trying to get from one bus to the other and crossing traffic and got uh, hit, and she died, tragically. Everyone in Buffalo understood it to be a tragedy the black residents of Buffalo immediately understood that it was connected to the racism, the systemic racism in the city. The white people in Buffalo, and these are of course all averages, I'm sure there are some on both sides that don't fit this description, but by and large the white population of Buffalo said, God, you're playing the race card, that's ridiculous, what could this you know, and uh, what I understood was they were all thinking the white people were thinking that to say this was a racialized incident meant that the truck driver had purposely run her over because he didn't like the fact she was a black person and that is exactly what we want to try to get away from in this country and that's what i have gotten away from thinking but that there was a whole system to be analyzed a series of systems and In this case, if white people could have listened to the black residents, they could have learned so much. But they did what I used to do, which is say, oh, man, you know, you're stirring the pot. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. If you just stop complaining and kind of, you know, pull up your bootstraps and go with it, as opposed to putting your energy into complaining, you know, maybe you'd get somewhere. Hmm. What had happened was um, a new mall. Here's how it was systemic. A new mall had been built in Buffalo, and in building the mall, um, the city considered the transportation routes that would be available, so people could drive, so, you know, there's a highway built, a road built there, there's plenty of parking. Okay, now what about people who want to get there by public transportation? Well, they realized that one of the buses that was going to make a very close, that was already going close to this new mall, was coming out of an impoverished black neighborhood, sort of an redundant sentence there but um and they didn't want that as they said they didn't want to move the problem down the line and so they rerouted the bus system to discourage people from that community going to the mall now people don't just go to a mall to buy people go to malls to work it's a critical piece of our economy you know you work you buy it's you feed in you you take out and so this one girl, Cynthia, uh, 17 years old, wanted a job desperately. She had gotten uh, pregnant. She had now had a young child, and she was trying to do school and work. And um, she she did get a job at the new mall, which she was really excited about. It required like an hour and a half commute, several different buses. you imagine in Buffalo in the middle of the winter with like a half an hour change in that cold, snowy weather? And it was right near Christmas, and she was making the cross from um, – one bus to another, and she had to cross seven lanes of traffic. There were snow banks, and, you know, she made a run for it, and she was killed. And so that, for me, when I saw that, I thought, oh, man, okay, so there was an actual conversation around the table where, you know, white people were saying, no, we don't want black people at our mall. There were even conversations – that were with store owners, where they said where the store owners said, "Are you who 's the population going to be? You know do I want to bring my shoe store here who's your population going to be well it 's going to be the white people from buffalo we 're not going to we 're going to discourage the black population so that was a lot of very intentional, explicit um, what I would call social engineering, economic engineering um, and Again, I don't want to pass judgment because I might have been that person sitting around that table wanting to make a business move that would protect my business interests. Hmm. But that's all it takes. It takes trying to protect your own interests without thinking about what the impact is going to be on other people. That is that is core to how racism gets reproduced. Or racism, um, let me say it another way, are structures of who benefits from the systems we put in place and who doesn't benefit. And, and,
0: and in ways that are, are, are not all that obvious, I mean, until we examine them this closely. But, I mean, otherwise, these are connections that most of us never see ever in all our lives unless they're pointed out to us.
1: Right. And what kills me is that there are so many people, not so many, there, there is an amazing group, as I call it, the infrastructure of racial justice educators across this country who know that film exists, who show it when they give workshops, who can explain this. So there's this huge imbalance in, in supply and demand in terms of how to solve this problem. The supply is in place to help America get its way, be, find its way out of racism. And yet the demand isn't there because the awareness of the fact that the issue is something more than um, uh, white people not liking people of color. And people are still thinking we're dealing with prejudice. But no, we're dealing with something much, much deeper and more complicated, which might sound um, intimidating. But there are people who know how to get us out of this.
0: Mm. But yes, we're talking about something much more ingrained and also something that is not, on the surface, nearly as grotesque uh which which makes it all the, the easier to 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 ignore you you write in talking about this this very sad story of 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 Cynthia uh, again who was was killed in that in that uh, as as she was crossing the the road on her way to work. You write without setting out to perpetuate racism, the white mall developers did just that all they had to do was what most business people do put protecting an investment ahead of weighing the impact on people you don't know. How many millions of conversations like those of the mall developers have played out at conference tables surrounded by white decision makers? A little later in the book, you talk about another image or metaphor that is uh, important in this conversation, and that is of the level playing field. And um one of the things that you talk about in this fourteenth chapter of your book called Zap, the discomfort of trying to cross racial lines, is this idea of skepticism and this reluctance we have to believe uh the complaints or or, 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 or fears of of people different from us whose lives have played out very, very differently, and how that That very skepticism, uh, in a sense, uh, serves to charge the situation uh, even more acutely. Can you say a word about how this has played out for you specifically or how you've seen this play out?
1: Yeah, this is a really important point. I'll give you an example, and then I'll give you a really easy uh, way for anybody to start making change in their life right away um, that can help uh, let the grip of racism loosen a little bit. So I, when I was a, before I was a classroom teacher, I um, was a nonprofit manager, and I really wanted to diversify the board and diversify the staff and diversify it was in the performing arts, diversify our audiences. Um, and I wanted to do that because I understood that we wanted to represent the community, the city that we were serving. And yet, with all that good intention, um, you know, I brought one black woman to the board, which is so tokenizing. I mean, I would say if anyone's going to start trying to diversify a board, bring several people on and really get some some um consultation about what you're doing. So we brought her to the board and we had there was a big fundraising luncheon in town. It was uh pairing funders, you know, corporate and foundation uh funders with nonprofit leaders. Well, of course I brought this black woman with me. And I did it, I'm sure. Because I wanted to show that we were kind of hip and, you know, this was back in the 80s when this whole, you know, diversifying thing was a little newer. And I'm, I totally tokenized her. And on the way home from it, we were walking and she said, oh, my God, that was awful. And I, I said, you know, what do you mean? And she said, I could just, I was sitting, I could just see everybody there sizing me up and how'd you get here? And, you know, as she described her experience to me, I, all the thoughts Uh, that I write about in my book went through my head. Is she making a mountain out of a molehill? Um, Is she seeing something that's not there? Is she paranoid? You know, I didn't see that. I didn't feel it. Well, of course I didn't see it and feel it. I'm not the one living the experience. And that is the thing, is that we really can't compare our uh, many of our experiences. We can't uh, compare across racial lines. You know, of course, there's some we can. We've, we can all talk about having our heart broken by our first love. There are lots you can, but there are many experiences you can't compare. And trying to is insulting and a huge disservice to this, the fight for racial justice. Um, and so the one thing I would say that every white person can start doing right away, believe. Just believe it. When a person of color tells you an experience, or a person who's different from you in any way, a person who, you know, if you're straight and, and they are are not, if you are middle class and someone is living in poverty, or if they're
0: in a wheelchair,
1: or if they're in a wheelchair, or if they weren't born in America and you were, and they're living the experience of an immigrant, when they start sharing, when someone other than you starts sharing their story, it's a gift. It is like a it, it, it's a gift they're trusting you in a way that is much harder than I think those, someone like me from a dominant culture, almost top to bottom, um, could imagine. And just believe. That is one of the most important things we can do, listen and believe.
0: Hmm. Your book is uh, such a, a good step in that direction because uh, you are willing to share with your readers uh, your your own personal thoughts on where you have been how far you have come i suppose how far you still have to go and, and all of us as well in coming to understand this about ourselves and and about the the world in, in in which we live the book again is called waking up white and finding myself in the story of race and we should mention that the book includes uh a question or two at the end of, of just about every single chapter in which you, you call upon the reader to think about this in terms of their own life. And uh, and the book also has uh, very thoughtfully crafted uh, ideas on how someone can act upon some of these new realizations about what racism is all about and the way in which it uh, spoils uh, all of our lives. Again, the book is Waking Up White." published by Elephant Room Press and the author, Debbie Irving. Debbie Irving, I sincerely thank you for writing this very important book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it.
1: Thank you so much. This has been really great.